Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I'd invite you to take your copies of the scripture and open to the book of Exodus with me this morning. Exodus 33. In a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 12. As we come to God's word this morning, I'm reminded of what it says in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Be encouraged, God's word does not fail. It goes forth and it does precisely what God intends it to do. God has so purposed his word and the preaching of his word to be a central act of our worship in our lives so that he would accomplish his work in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So God is at work this morning through his word, and his word will do precisely what he wants it to do. Be encouraged. Would you stand with me as I read Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23? once I get through 23, I will say, this is the word of God. And together, we will say, with vigor, thanks be to God. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please... Show me your, now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. 
But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, our flesh is like the flower of the field and grass. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. It is the implanted word which is able to save our souls. And so we ask you now, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The king is dead. Long live the king. We could say, This, in part, describes what we read in Isaiah 6. If you remember Isaiah 6, there we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. King Uzziah was the king of Judah, who grew strong and proud and was actually unfaithful to the Lord because he went into the temple of the Lord and burned incense on the altar of incense. Only priests were allowed by God's law to do this. And as Uzziah disobeyed the Lord and tried to force the Lord's hand, tried to control God, there was a priest by the name of Azariah. And you know what Azariah did? He took 80 other priests with him to go confront Uzziah in the temple. And when these priests came and confronted Uzziah, he became angry, and the Lord then struck him with leprosy on his forehead. The unclean king was then quickly ushered out of the temple, and he lived out the rest of his days as a leper and was excluded from the house of the Lord. The unclean leper king who infringed upon the holiness and glory of God is now dead, and Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, the true king, seated upon his throne, where? In the temple. And there the train, or the hem of his robe, filled the temple. Isaiah saw then seraphim standing above him, each with six wings. They called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then the thresholds of the temple shook, and it was filled with smoke. There's a picture here that Isaiah has of this filling, right? The train of the Lord's robe filled the temple The angels said the whole earth is full of his glory, and then this smoke 
filled the temple as well? What is all of this filling? This filling is the glory of God. The wrong king in the temple meant judgment. The right king in the temple meant glory. And Isaiah has a reply to this vision. He falls down. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Dread, terror, and fear gripped Isaiah to his core. And I want to focus this moment on one word in Isaiah's response. He says, I am lost. Or it could be said, I am destroyed, or I am ruined, or I am undone. What was Isaiah experiencing when his eyes saw the king in his vision? Isaiah himself believes to be ruined, almost as if the very fiber of his being can no longer hold together. There, in the glory of the Lord and of the holiness of the Lord, it's as if Isaiah is being torn apart because of the greatness and the glory of God. Under the immense weight and pressure from this vision, it's almost as if Isaiah is being ripped apart. And his uncleanness is exposed by Yahweh's light. And he knows and he feels that he cannot remain in God's holy presence in that state. The idea of being lost or ruined or undone also has the idea of being silenced. And this is the silence that is associated with death. He would be silenced from joining in the heavenly choir, silenced because of the words that were coming out of his mouth that were unclean. Isaiah knew the weightiness of God, a weightiness we would do well not to forget because it is the sheer weightiness of God that forms the people of God. Let me say that again. It's the weightiness of God that forms the people of God. A weightless God, a light God, makes Christians who are as light as a feather. They are blown this way and that by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. They are blown this way and that by the storms of life with no anchor, with no guiding light, with no shield or security. How weighty, how heavy, how glorious is your God. And how are you able to tell? Here is one indicator. How weighty is God in your prayers? And what are you willing or unwilling to pray about? Is there anything too difficult for God? Is there anything impossible for God? Is there anything too wonderful for God to do? Our small prayers will reveal how little we think our God is, while our big prayers will reveal how great we truly believe our God to be. We are looking at Moses' prayer of intercession here in Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. 
And as Moses brought his prayer of intercession before the Lord, what did he ask for? What did he request? Remember, we see this intercessory prayer as primarily God-centered. While while Moses is bringing this prayer on behalf of the people before God, it's amazing how his request and his prayer is all centered around God. It's all about God. There are some who think that Moses was trying to manipulate God in these verses. As if Moses is trying to pull God down to his own level. But I believe God is using the prayers of Moses to accomplish his sovereign will. And instead of pulling God down, it is actually God coming down of his own volition and grace to accomplish his divine purposes among Moses and his people. So what do we learn from Moses' requests? Well, last week we saw, number one, request that the Lord would graciously reveal his ways. Number two this morning is where we're going to focus and spend our time. Request that the Lord would graciously reveal his glory. Request that the Lord would graciously reveal his glory. We come to this second request now. As Moses is talking to God in verse 18. Again, we hear a tone of urgency, earnestness in his voice with this word, please, please, Lord, I'm pleading with you. Please, Lord, I'm on my knees, on my face before you. Please, Lord, I don't know where else to turn. I don't know what else to do. I'm at the end of myself. Please, Lord, ask. And so Moses says, please, Lord, show me your glory. What an audacious request. Who would dare ask such a thing? Who does Moses think that he is asking for the Lord to show his glory to him? It's just not done. It's too outlandish. It's too outrageous. Moses doesn't know what he's asking for, does he? What kind of request is this? It's a request for all the marbles. For the whole kit and caboodle. In a sense, everything. The word glory in Hebrew means weighty. Glory describes heaviness. It's not saying that God is physically heavy, but that there is a seriousness, an importance, a weightiness, and a heaviness to his person. That is to collect all of our attention and gaze. Maybe even some of you have used that word in that way sometimes. I think it's before my time, but you would say something is heavy. That's heavy, man. If Moses was requesting God to reveal the essential reality of God and his sovereign will in his first request. So let me say that again. 
In Moses' first request, he was requesting God to show that God was real and what his sovereign will was. And now, in this second request, he is asking God to reveal his essential quality. This is the essential quality of God's being, his glory. To know God is to know he is glorious. To see, to look at, to behold the glory of God is to see, to look at, and to behold God. It is this that we must understand. God makes himself known through his glory. There is no more intimate request Moses could make of God. To cry out, please God, show me your glory, is to request the full, unadulterated, essential quality of God to be put on full display for Moses to soak in with his very being. It was a request of an experiential, sensory perception of God. In essence, Moses is saying, give me you, Oh Lord, give me all of you. Hold nothing back from me. Let the fullness of your glory consume me. And how does the Lord reply? I think this is where some commentators get it wrong. They read the Lord's reply and they believe that God did not honor Moses' request. Like God changed the subject. Like Moses said, please God, show me your glory. And that the Lord said, let's not talk about glory, I'll show you my goodness and my name. What if, on the other hand, the Lord is answering Moses' requests? You want me to show you my glory, Moses? Here is how you will know my glory. Here is how you will experience my glory. Here is how you will see my glory. You will see my glory through my goodness and through my name. The goodness of the Lord and the name of the Lord are not consolation prizes given to Moses. They were not some second-rate, watered-down, lesser things that God gave Moses instead of his glory. Moses is not like a little boy who asked for a bike for Christmas and got a bag of socks instead. Well, Moses, you wanted God's glory, but all you got was his goodness and his name. No, God's goodness and his name are those qualities of God's person that shine forth his glory. And there is a reason that God's goodness and God's name are under attack today. If people can subvert God's goodness, if they can drag the Lord's name through the mud, they believe they will diminish God's glory. This is what Paul says of those who are of this world in Romans 1. That claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you hear it? They exchanged the glory of the true God for those things that have no glory at all. They exchanged the glory they couldn't control for what they could control. 
They exchanged being in submission to the glory of God to cast off what they believed to be the shackles of submission so they could live however they want, but in their so-called freedom, they only end up destroying themselves. God is going to make His goodness pass before Moses. We would not know what goodness is without God. We hear it over and over and over again in the Bible, don't we? Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Is good. The Lord is good and His steadfast love endures forever. No, we would not know goodness without God. Why? Because God is the very definition of goodness. Goodness is not something outside of God that He must conform to. It's not some level that He must attain to as though Goodness needed to be added to God. No, God is good. And that is not a mere description of what he is like. Goodness is God's very nature. And Satan and the world are constantly and consistently seeking to attack God's goodness. It happened in the back of Garden of, in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? When the serpent put the seed of doubt in Eve's mind about the goodness of God. Did God really say? Is God really good, Eve? Has he really given you everything? Sure, you can eat from all the trees of the garden, but what about this one? And it's right there, isn't it? Where Satan knew if he could just plant that seed of doubt about the goodness of God, he could tempt Adam and Eve to sin. And that's the problem of all of our hearts, isn't it? Maybe we can determine what is good. Maybe we get to decide what is right and wrong apart from God. But that drives home this point. We would not know what is good apart from God. When the world ignores God or loses God or separates itself from God or even claims to kill God, the most horrifying things happen. It's then when that which is evil is called good and that which is good is then called evil. Goodness becomes completely arbitrary and completely turned upside down when it's detached from God. Don't deceive yourself to think you can know what is good apart from God. And so God says here he is going to manifest his nature. How is it going to be manifested? Perhaps it would be helpful to think of God's goodness like light passing through a prism. What happens when light passes through a prism? That light is bent or refracted. Each wavelength of light is split to reveal a different color. I'm not a scientist. I read this on the internet. But there's something called white light, W-H-I, 
G-H-T, white light, that goes into the prism. And as it passes through the prism, it's bent or again refracted. And it comes out red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. One light goes in and a rainbow of variation is put on display in the most beautiful of fashion. If God's goodness were to pass through a prism, what would come out? His divine attributes like grace and mercy and patience and steadfast love and faithfulness and forgiveness. God is showing His glory and He puts His goodness on display. Maybe if we're to think about it for a moment, the Lord says, I'm going to cause all of my goodness to pass by and then I'm going to proclaim my name. It's like God gives the video and the audio. You're going to see something. You're going to see my goodness manifested and put on display before you. It's going to pass by, but you're also going to hear something. You're going to hear my name proclaimed. The name Yahweh, the name that the Lord had told Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. The one who is self-existent, the one who says, I am who I am. Yahweh's name encompasses all of who he is. And when the Lord's name is proclaimed, God's glory shines forth. Often God's glory and God's name signify the same thing. They are almost used sometimes synonymously. If you have your Bibles, look at Psalm 102, 15. Psalm 102, 15. The nations will fear what? The name of the Lord... And all the kings of the earth will fear what? Your glory. You see how they're used in parallel there, right? They will fear your name. In the first line, in the second line, they're going to fear your glory. Or if you go a little further in God's word to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, 19. Turn there with me. Isaiah 59, 19. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and what? His glory from the rising of the sun. There again, put in tandem together, the name of the Lord and the glory of the Lord are used synonymously. And next the Lord makes this statement. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. You see that there in verse 19. Here is the Lord's declaration of His sovereignty. <laughs> Reminds me of a child. Have you ever heard a child say this? I can do it, mom or dad, I can do it all by myself. The Lord here is declaiming, uh, proclaiming His freedom and His sovereignty and His prerogative. No one controls this God. No one is entitled to God's grace and mercy. God does it of His own volition. 
God's grace and mercy or compassion. So you see those words there in the ESV. I will be gracious. So there's grace and mercy or mercy and compassion can be used synonymously. But God's grace and mercy and compassion are where His glory and His goodness intersect with mankind. God's glory leads to the demonstration of His compassion toward mankind. Because God is glorious, we know His compassion towards us. If God is not glorious, we would not know compassion. We would not know grace. And to think for a moment, is God allowed to do with His grace and mercy what He wills? What is amazing is that God gives His grace and mercy to anyone. He doesn't have to give it. He's not obligated to give it. He's not forced to give it. He does it because He wants to. Here, God is giving mankind what they do not deserve, that is, His grace and favor, and He's not giving them what they do deserve. He's not giving them the punishment they deserve for their sin, and so He's giving them mercy God is communicating the freedom of His sovereign will. He is not a reactionary God reacting to the circumstances around Him. When God exercises His grace and mercy, it is evidence of His sovereignty. Moses is not controlling Yahweh. Yahweh is in control of everything. In fact, Paul picks up on this verse in the book of Romans. If you want to turn there with me just to see this, Romans 9, 15. And Paul is talking here about God's sovereignty and the salvation of sinners. And he says, Romans 9, starting in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God unjust? Is God unfair? By no means, or a thousand upon thousands of no's. No way. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God expressing His divine freedom and sovereignty in the salvation of sinners is evidence of His divine fairness and justice. And here is the amazing thing. We should want it no other way. When God evidences His sovereignty in the salvation of sinners, when He is bringing to fruition this phrase, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, what is God doing? He's magnifying His glory. He's putting His glory on display through the salvation of sinners, not because of their will or exertion or something that they do to force God's hand, but because God so chooses in His own divine purposes and will. God is 
not unfair. God is not unjust. God is not mean or a tyrant. God has so designed to exercise His sovereign will in saving His elect as a way to shine forth His glory all the brighter and all more magnificently in this world. When God has to conform to us and to what we think is good and what we think is fair and what we think is just, guess what? No glory. But when God is sovereign, glory upon glory upon glory in the salvation of sinners. And finally, we see the Lord could not grant Moses' request in its entirety because no one could see the face of God and live. No one could behold the fullness of God's glory and not be crushed by the weight of His holiness. Man in his fallen state in his unclean condition, could not bear that weight. God's full glory is deadly to fallen man. And to think of God's grace, he takes Moses. He says, Moses, my glory will pass before you, but you cannot see all of it. So I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you and I will pass by and then I will take my hand away and you shall see just, just my back. What was it that Moses saw? Well, let's think about this for a moment. God does not have a body as we do. He doesn't have a human form like we do. God's using these human metaphors to help us understand what it is that Moses is seeing and experiencing. So God literally does not have a back. But Moses is seeing the after effects of God's glory as it passes by. He's seeing just a glimpse, just a taste. In fact, some think that this is even a, a Hebrew idiom that when God says, but you will see just my back. He's saying, but you will just see not very much. You'll see hardly anything. But Moses, what you see will be enough. Moses, your audacious request to see the glory of God will be answered. And you will see a little bit of God's glory. What a thing to behold God's glory. God's glory shapes and forms Christians into the people that they should be. And it reminded me of an event in Jesus' life. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. You remember this, I think. Mark 6.48. This is Jesus walking on the water. Verse 48 of Mark 6. And he saw, that's Jesus, that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. 
And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. What a miracle. Jesus sees his disciples out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. They're not making progress across the sea to get to the other side. He sees them. He knows their difficulty. And so God then, or I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus is walking on the water. Yes, God was walking on the water, right? Which is exactly what we're told in Psalm 77, 19 and Isaiah 43, 16. It's the Lord who walks on the waters. It's the Lord who walks on the seas. And here it is, Jesus Christ walking on the sea. And then look at what it says. And he meant to pass by them. Well, that's weird. Jesus is walking on the water. He knows his disciples are in distress, and he meant to pass by them. Why did he do that? Why would he want to do that? Why does Mark record that for us? Like, isn't that the superfluous, like, uh, detail? Does it matter if he cared to pass them by or not? He didn't, ultimately. Mark, why did you tell us that? Because what I think Mark is doing, he's pulling this word, pass by. He's actually pulled that out of, I think, Exodus 33. Exodus 33, my glory will pass by you. It's the same word. It's the same word that Mark is using. Mark would have read the Old Testament in a Greek translation. And so he pulls that Greek word out of that Greek translation and he uses it here in Mark 48, and what's Mark saying? The disciples were about to see the glory of God when Jesus passed them by. They were about to see something magnificent and something great. This wasn't just anybody. This is the Lord of glory who's about to pass by them. What does this teach us? It teaches us exactly what John says in chapter 1. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have what? Seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers tell us we see God's glory in Jesus Christ. You want to see God's glory? You look at Jesus. That's where you see God's glory. That's where we look now to see God's glory. We look to Jesus Christ because when we behold Jesus Christ, what happens? We're conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another when we behold the Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet we let things get in the way of our eyesight, don't we? We let things distract us. We let things pull us away. We would look at other things in this world, things that worry us, things that cause us to be discouraged, things that would drag us down, things that are ungodly and we lose sight of the Savior and we lose sight of the glory of God and we have something magnificent to behold Jesus Christ we get distracted by things that have no glory at all Look outside of yourself and look to Christ 
and you will be changed from one degree of glory to another as you look forward to one day, one day when you will see something like you have never seen before if you know Jesus Christ. John says this in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. There's coming a day when we will see Jesus Christ in His glory with new eyes, with resurrected eyes. And when we behold Jesus Christ, our Savior, when we are enveloped and inundated with His unadulterated glory, we will finally and fully be like Him because we will finally and fully, for the first time, see Him like He truly is. No distractions, nothing to get in the way, nothing ever to take our eyes off of Him. You think you've seen glory? You ain't seen nothing yet. Please, please, Lord, show us your glory. Let us not be satisfied with anything else. Let us not be deceived into thinking there's any other one or anything else out there that would have glory that could hold a candle to you. Let us not exchange your glory for those things that have no glory. And Father, if there's anyone here today who longs to see this glory, as we read, may they see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It comes through your great and glorious gospel, a gospel that proclaims Jesus Christ died on the cross, bearing our sin and our shame. He died in our place. But he rose again from the dead on the third day. He did this to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and to give the gift of eternal life for all of those who call upon Him in faith and repent of their sins. Oh Lord, if there is someone here today who needs to do that, would today be the day that you show them Christ's great glory through His sacrifice and through His resurrection so that we all with unveiled face may behold the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.